Welcome to Off The Court and today's a real treat for me because I get to chat to a person who I most admire, whose story I'd love to share through his own words. Ian Rhodes was a teacher for 40 years and in my opinion the epitome of what a great teacher should be. He's worked with some of the most challenging young people around and his beliefs, values have never faltered despite his life's ups and downs. Ian has been a friend, a mentor and a teacher to me and above all, an amazing role model. This was part one of our wonderful conversation. Enjoy. I've got to be very careful about erring. Erring, umming and erring. Yeah, I don't um apparently, but I err. And I don't, I don't see it myself, but... I've just done one now, right at the start there. Well, we've got a special app that what we can do is we can press a button at the end and all the ears can all vanish. All the ears can go. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember the first thing you said to me? The first ever thing when you clapped eyes on me as a kid? Was it uh, glasses? Glasses! Get over, get over here. <laughs> glasses, get over here. <laughs> you can be a player, son. You can be a player. Well, you certainly inspired me to be one, that's for sure. Ian Rhodes, one of the, uh, a head teacher of a small school um, in Bolton. Got that right? Yes. Uh, Deputy head of the largest pupil referral unit in the world at one point, I think was the, uh, was the headline in the Daily Mail. And teacher of various subjects well delighted to chat with you today and really appreciate you giving up your time good morning jeremy thank you very much for inviting me along fabulous so where did it all begin you grew up in manchester i did i i was born in a place called swinton which is very close to salford and it's very famous because there are two ex-busby babes people that died at munich air crash Right. Uh, buried in in the cemetery there, and my great grandfather's buried there. My great grandmother's buried there. So before, so before you, was was there a lot of history of your family in one place for a long time? Indeed, yeah. It, there were very very small terraced houses. Uh, my mother was one of uh, twelve children. So at one time in in a particular house, there were 14 people. One of 12? Knocking around, yeah. My dad lived um, six six houses up, but he only had three people, three children in his family. Right. So was he one of three or he had three other siblings? He was one of three. One of three. He was one of three. Quite big families. I mean, my dad's one of nine, but you don't really hear about that much. You don't, no, no. Um, and I think, well, I know definitely two two died, uh, but I think there might have been a, a third that died, so there could have been 15, all told. Wow. Absolutely that's, that's some incredible. Size. So w- were you in touch with with your dad's family then and your mum's family, um, as you, you know, in, as a youngster? Oh, yeah. For the first six years, uh, we... We lived just three streets away when mum and dad got married. We lived three streets away, and I was the, I was the first child. 
and uh, my, my granddad, my granddad Rhodes, he was obsessed with me, and he he had boxer dogs, and I love dogs, as as you know. Uh, so I followed him around everywhere, and he had um, he had an allotment that we used to go to, and we used to spend you know considerable amount of time in the allotment, no, much to my no mother's displeasure. <laughs> no iPads. No. <laughs> I mean, I just, I just imagine me telling the kids, get out to the allotment. Yeah, no, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. And when you, when you're growing up like that, there was the situation at that time. You, you could wander anywhere. I can remember wandering around at four, five, and six around the streets. You know, there was sort of huge sand pits near where we lived, um, and we weren't far away from the hills. And that, you know, you would just go, go, go along there. And just play, and there was no trouble or anything. No, uh, very different to now. You couldn't allow a, you know, a small child to do that now nowadays. No, no, you can't. I mean, Alessia, as you know, one of uh, one of my daughters. She she only works about ten minutes away, but there's something about what you know when she finishes at ten o'clock at night. Wouldn't let her walk back. No, you know, and even though she's sixteen, it's it's a it's a strange world now because I remember just going everywhere on my bike, and as you say, yeah, there, you know, it was just a different time, wasn't it? Yeah, society has changed sort of considerably, really. Mm. So that's where I was in the, in the first six years of my life, and uh, I really enjoyed it. But then my father got a job uh, in Blackpool, and he he was a plumber, and he worked on building sites. So he got this really big job, and it was uh, it was convenient for my mother because uh, she didn't like the sort of situation that me and my granddad had. <laughs> Much to my granddad's displeasure, we moved. Why didn't she like it? Because she she felt that I was taking more notice of her than than I was of uh, of, of him, him than I was than I was of her really. Right. Uh, he was very upset about this. He. When we moved, he decided to get a caravan and come over here <laughs> so that he could see me. Um, right. Yeah, we had a fantastic relationship, but um, he, he didn't live much longer after that. He only lived for a couple of years, unfortunately. Uh, he had, right. He had a bit of pulmonary disease. So. Right. So, what was it about you? What, what was it about your granddad then that was? You know, he's obviously one of your earliest influences in in your life. What was it about him? Well, he took me all different places. Took me, took me to allotment. You know, took me to see, see his mates. Took me to Old Trafford on the Saturday. He he, he worked near Old Trafford, so he would just uh, put me with somebody. I'd go in and watch the game. He'd go to his work. He'd uh, his mate would uh, bring me back, and we, we'd go home. You know, and loved it yeah of course because I love football <laughs> did so was would you say he was one of the your introductions to football oh yeah definitely to, to sport really because mm. at that time I just uh, everything like my first son uh, Nicholas everything was a, a competition you know I, I ran everywhere I never walked I just ran everywhere Usually not using my brain too much, but uh, my feet really. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's fast forward a little bit more then. So into your into your schooling years, have you have you ended up in Blackpool by now? Then, so you said you moved to Blackpool. What what sort of age were you? Can you remember? I moved to Blackpool at six. Okay. Um, 
and my introduction, I went to a school called Norbrecht, which is which has always been one of the best schools. Still there? Around it's still there. And my introduction to, to Norbrecht was my first day. I, I met up with this lady called Miss Wilde, who was 44 in the class, and uh, she brought me next to her and said, OK, um, Young Rhodes, read me this. And I, I couldn't read it. So she stopped the class working. He was in silence, stopped the class and said, this boy has come from Salford and he can't read. <laughs> so at break time, I decided I'd had enough, so I went off. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, that was the only bad side of Norbert. I, I, love, I love schooling. I love going to school. Um, Norbert was uh, very famous at that time for sports and uh, I, I love sports and I spent most of my time looking out the window when I was supposed to be working. Um, and I was, I did two big things sport-wise when I was at Norbrack. I was the Blackpool sprint champion, athletics, and I played for the town team, so. Football? Football, Football, yeah. 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 So how did that, how did that go into secondary school then? Did, were you still in Blackpool when you went and moved into secondary and yeah, I was, sport yeah. was a big thing then? Norbrecht was a very big school. He had three, three classes per year and I was, I was in the top class and there was 44 of us and 43 went to the grammar school and one person went to the secondary school after the 11 plus and that was Ian Rhodes. But I enjoyed it because yeah. I knew I was going to play football instead of rugby. Yeah. So there was no problem for me. <laughs> no problem at all. <laughs> Fabulous. So you, you mentioned in sport there and, and, and obviously athletics and football. And, you know, I've, I've kind of reflected on this a little bit because obviously the, the podcast is called Off the Court, which, you know, is a nod to basketball. Yeah. Because my first experience of you was in the gym. Yeah. At collegiate as a kid. You were my basketball coach, but that wasn't really a sport that your sport was it. It became my sport. I mean, when I when I was thirteen, when I was in the second year at uh, at Montgomery, uh, our, our PE teacher was uh, were, was was an incredible guy. He 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 played for Great Britain at rugby league, but he was also a really good basketball player. Wow and. He, he taught us basketball, and at that time, he taught us all the skills of basketball. And at that time, it wasn't being taught properly at all in, in other schools. So yeah. Montgomery won, won everything. Yeah. Um, and we had, a, we had a decent team, and we went along one day to the, uh, to the, to the grammar school. Who, who had really big, big chaps playing for them. And we lost, unfortunately, by two points. And the teacher, Bryn Jones, he he's quite a quite a funny story actually when you when you look back on it. He he said, I haven't been beaten at basketball for seven years. And he said, This is what you're going to do now. So he said, Get in a straight line behind me and he said, We're gonna walk from Blackpool Road here back to Bispam. So we had to walk in a single file behind him, no talking, all the way to Bispam. And I thought that was a good lesson, actually, in mm. life. And 
we never got beat again. No, at basketball, <laughs> we never got beat again. <laughs> but there's, a, there's another, there's another little bit of that story, isn't there? Because you passed by somewhere, didn't you? We did, yeah. I'm a friend of mine who became uh, Douglas, who became, um, who went into the army, and became a good player, basketball player in the army. He said, "Sir, I said I live." Um, he said, "I live on the way back to school." He said, "Not today, you don't, son." <laughs> so Douglas, he had to carry carry on through to Bisman. Carry on through to Bisman. Yeah. Now you mentioned Bryn a good few times over our our, our friendship. And would it be fair to say he was quite an influence on you? Yeah, he, he was indeed. I mean, he was he was a very disciplined chap. Uh, he was somebody that you would you would never want to cross at all. But he, yeah, he was very influential on so many so many boys, especially. Um, I mean, he he started Roger Utley off, and Roger became. Uh, in, in rugby, yeah, and Roger became uh, an England player, rugby union, played for uh, Great Britain, etc. Mm. So yeah, he, he, he did a phenomenal amount of work, and and people of my time anyway. If you if you say Montgomery, you say Bryn Jones in the same in the same sentence, same sentence, yeah. yeah. So. Can you remember, I mean, I'm, I'm making an association, so correct me if I'm wrong now, but can you remember the first time you decided I'm going to be a teacher? Yeah, um, when I was 16, uh, my O-level results were good enough so I could go through to a grammar school. So when you went through to a grammar school, you, you played rugby. Uh, but I was, I was a soccer player, essentially, uh, but I, I was fast. So rugby was, I suppose, ideal for me. And I got under the care of influence of Jack Warmby, who was different than Bryn. Bryn was like fiery and Jack was very calm, but they were both incredibly passionate about, about what they did. Mm. And I saw, a, I saw a different side to it while I was, while I was with Jack. Um, but I still, I still love football and I played football as much as I could. Uh, which was difficult when you were at the grammar school. Um, and I went for many different trials. I, I thought eventually, you know, 17, 18, I would, I would become a professional footballer. Was that your dream then at that point? That was my dream, yeah. Yeah. That was my dream. Um, and Blackburn did offer me something, but it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't substantial really. Um and I decided at that time that I'd say what I thought was the second best. And the second best to me <laughs> was becoming a PE teacher. Second best. Yeah, second best at that time. Yeah. Uh, in the end, it turned out fantastic, yeah. you know, for me. But it, it was at that time uh, something that was, you know, different, but something that I'd carry on and something that yeah. I thought I could make a difference in. Yeah. And I guess also with you, I mean, your love of sport comes through, doesn't it, here? You can hear that. So I guess it's it's a way of keeping that sport in your life, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You know, every day you, you've got you've got a connection to sport. I'm interested, how much support did you get from your mum and dad then around that time? You know, I mean, every every boy dreams of being a footballer, don't they? So what? How were they? Were they supportive, encouraging? Yeah, I mean, my mum, my, my dad wasn't sporty at all. Uh, he was 
he was very very good with his hands he he, he could build anything um but my mother was my mother was fast she was a, a bit of a sprinter when she was younger so there was that side and but they they weren't really supportive i mean um of you know i when i was at collegiate i i did a parents uh, award for the parent group of parents that came along and supported the children the best i mean my my mother only ever came well my mother my dad never came to watch me in anything and my mother came once um uh, basically because we were playing liverpool in a quarterfinals of a cup <laughs> and <laughs> yeah but they, they were they were support they, they they bought me anything yeah they bought me all the equipment they, they bought me the clothes etc but the, the lives sort of branched in different directions mm. really but it, they they both knew that i was obsessed with sport yeah yeah it's interesting isn't it because at first listen it's almost like well actually they weren't supportive they just left you to it and there wasn't much guidance there potentially but actually that's just the way it was that's just the way it was at that time it didn't mean you didn't feel unsupported when you were at home or unloved it's just the way it was and yet if you apply that today um you can almost hear it you know in in kids voices they need that constant support and reassurance do you think there's a difference from then to now I'm I'm sure there's a difference yeah I'm sure there's a difference and quite often parents these days because of social media and television want to live their lives again through the children mm. and become become a massive part really of it mm. you know become a coach perhaps but are always always there to take the children in the car however you know, the distance only might be half an hour, uh, half a mile, but they'll get the car out and they'll drive them through and give them instructions, etc. Mm. I mean, I saw this more with my own uh, with my own children, uh, especially Nicholas, who was a who was a swimmer. Mm. Um, parents were absolutely obsessed and wouldn't leave the children alone, and they couldn't understand. When I dropped Nicholas off at the pool, and he was there for two hours, and I'd just come and pick him up. Why didn't you stay? Why didn't you stay and time him? And I'd say, "What do you mean time him? Well, how, how fast he's doing?" I said, "I said he's got a coach. I said the coach mm. will sort him out. He doesn't need me there." Yeah. But I think people live their lives through the kids. Mm. It's an interesting one, isn't it? You know, there's some good and some bad in both. You know, um, because it's it's got to be a good thing, surely, for parents to take an interest in what the kids are doing and where they're going and what their aspirations are. But then it's a fine line, isn't it, between support and encouragement and then almost influencing them to be in a certain way. Yeah, and I think it's more so in individual sports than uh, collective than team sports. To be honest, you see it more in athletics and swimming than you do in, say, rugby and soccer. Mm. Um, but I, I've seen an awful lot of it, and I, I, I purposely step away from it mm. when when Nicholas was um, playing soccer. Uh, for example, 
um, and I was very, very heavily involved in soccer, in, in coaching, refereeing, etc. I, I would stand aside. I wouldn't say anything. I would just stand on, on the sideline. And people, mo- most especially men, um, were destroying the children, I thought. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was glad that he didn't, neither of them, neither Nicholas or Simon, um, went, went, into, went into soccer. No, no. So let me ask you something about sport generally in in school. I can remember, you know, being in school and from what you've described over the last few minutes, you've described a a school that was full of sport opportunities. There seems to be a a real focus in the last, maybe in the last 20, 25 years on academic achievement and in some respects, rightly so, through you know, the introduction of Ofsted, for example, and the pressures that, that they now put on schools and the accountability. Do you think that has caused schools or us as a community to lose, you know, that that um, that passion for, for, for things like sport? Um, I, I don't think so. I think there is... I think there is a big passion um, in certain schools. I think more so that it's it's turned over into the uh, into the public schools rather than state state schools. Mm. Nowadays, it amazes me that there's so little sport, extracurricular sport, being played in state state schools. Mm. Well, that's kind of what I meant, yeah. And that. And this goes back to 20, 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, uh, with the union strikes. And I can remember I was part of a union at that time. Uh, and the biggest thing that we were told would make a difference to our case at that time with the, uh, with the government was for PE teachers to stop uh, having extracurricular activities <laughs> to stop matches. And I, I couldn't understand that. And because of that, I I didn't continue in the union I, w- I was in because one of the big things, might be 30 years ago now, yeah. I'm getting old. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I stopped that union because of that, because one of the big reasons mm. I'd gone into teaching was to have excellent teams excellent individuals in different sports mm. you couldn't do that unless you gave them time mm. time is the key as as we know absolutely and I just want to say you know I mean when I think back, I, I, I don't have a great memory I've mentioned this before I don't have a great memory of, of childhood but one thing I do remember really clearly is my secondary school experience um, and from my perspective it was a great experience, but not for anything that happened in the classroom, for everything that happened outside of the classroom, on the field or in the gym. So sport was just a huge part of my life. It taught me so much. And as you know, you know I've got five children and four now are going through the school system. And it's so sad for me, but I don't want to live, you know, I don't want them to live my new life, as you've just pointed out. <laughs> but it's so sad for me that, there isn't that op- perceived opportunity for them to do that and learn those other skills. Because um, that just seems to have gone. 
just seems to have vanished. I think it's still there in in public schools, mm. very definitely, and that's why you know nationally, at, at county level and national level, teams are dominated by mm. by private schools, and the top schools uh, still still have that, and uh, state schools still have that, and you can see the difference between them. Mm. Um, my, my two grandchildren are in Trafford and there is a school there called Ashton Mersey which is a secondary school and they they have children from years let me think now everything's changed the names of them years 10 and 11 that come from Manchester United and Manchester City mm. hope hoping to be uh, professional footballers so they provide they put money into into the school so their extracurricular work is is phenomenal mm. and because of that they're the best best school in in Trafford and probably in Greater Manchester mm. I think there is a uh, you're right I mean that, that's you, you're absolutely right maybe my focus wasn't on on public schools because that still exists doesn't it um I guess the gap is more in in the the regular sector, and maybe maybe it's because I'm exposed to it a little bit more that I can see that. So, you decided to go off and, and train to be a teacher, and then you became a PE teacher, and your first school was back in Manchester, is that right? No, my first school was in Bolton, a very small school, and I'd had three years at, um, at St John's in York, and I, I enjoyed the three years. And this was, when I'd finished the three years, this was my first big mistake in my life because uh, my girlfriend at the time wanted to get married. So I decided I, w I wouldn't take my degree. So both career-wise and personal-wise, it was the worst thing that I'd done. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I moved into teaching and I really, en I really enjoyed it small school I I was there all the time I worked till six seven o'clock every night during the winter it'd be soccer during the summer it'd be athletics and we had we had really good teams because of it and yeah I loved I, I mean I I was in education for 42 years and I loved every day mm -hmm. I can't say I never enjoyed going in no to school and I, I, I loved it was called Tong High, this school. And I, I probably learnt as much in the three years that I was there from the head of PE, who was a chap called Dave Stokes, than I did in the three years that I did at uh, St John's. He, he was an amazing guy. So, so, that, so what was his name, sorry? He was called Dave Stokes. Dave Stokes. So, yeah. so what did Dave teach you then that, that kind of you took into you? Well, your about world? life, really. Mm about life and, and how you t had to adapt to different to different abilities of children and and even you know a little a little tubby lad could uh, could learn and enjoy doing gymnastics creating a creating a sequence and he perhaps remember that for the for the rest of his life mm. and nobody dave spent amazing amount of time with with individuals um, just bringing them along. Mm. He was, a, he, and he was a great gymnast himself. Different to me, totally yeah. different to me. 
but he you know he enjoyed he enjoyed ball sports as well but all the children respected him mm. and and the teachers as well yeah so it sounds like you're describing somebody quite inclusive oh incredibly inclusive mm. yeah yeah and that my, my main theme like i said before rightly or wrongly was i wanted to go in and uh, develop excellence excellence in individuals and teams and he he showed me at that point that it wasn't all about that no and that's interesting isn't it because so then your career progresses and you have a as, as you say a long and distinguished career in education through a variety of schools um and then on to so i want to fast forward a little bit so on from your very competitive years as a PE teacher and head of PE, etc., on to then becoming a senior leader in our pupil referral unit. So for those of you that are listening that might not know what a pupil referral unit is, those children who perhaps can't just make it in a normal everyday school, what we would call um, a, uh, a mainstream school, sometimes have to go to a pupil referral unit for either a short period of time or for the rest of their education. And you were in probably one of the most challenging areas of the UK doing that. What was that like? Uh, it was it was tough. I'd spent all, all my life in uh, secondary schools. Um, I'd, I'd worked through to management areas. I'd I changed from PE to RE and maths, and 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 actually really enjoyed working working in the classroom. But then I was offered an opportunity to be a head in in a small private school, um, but that that didn't work out. And a friend, um, Alan, who who was in charge of the PRU in Blackpool, uh, he asked me if, whether I'd come along and be an assistant head. At the one-to-one unit, uh, which was very interesting indeed. These were children who who couldn't work in a classroom, who couldn't work in a small group, who could only work on a one-to-one basis, and they had to be they had to be very very disciplined. Mm. The whole unit. I mean, that's very very different from developing excellence in sport it is it's a, it's it's incredible change but it's something that I, I really enjoyed doing because you knew if you if you worked hard and you treated the person the individual as an individual that they would they would eventually formulate a relationship with you and it was all about it was all about creating relationships. Mm. And we, we had children there that had, that had been in six, seven secure units around the country mm. and had been fast-forwarded to Blackpool because Blackpool is the dream city that can sort <laughs> everything out. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, yeah, and the people, the staff that worked, at, we, we called it the Mountford Centre, Climb every mountain, ford every bridge. <laughs> so that was an interesting. That was an interesting part of your your journey then, 
um, and you talk about the importance of of kind of building relationships as the key to engaging those those young people. Did you ever feel like you weren't making a difference? Because it, I would imagine it could be quite easy to to think that. No, he had you had to be very careful who who you invited in to the um, to the center. I can remember making two or three mistakes inviting people in uh one being um a couple of policemen it didn't go down too well at no. all and it took us a couple of days to to write that situation in within the within the center the 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 policemen were fantastic but uh, the children just couldn't accept them being in, couldn't go in the same one. area yeah no. i suppose that speaks to their to their experience in the community and perhaps the trauma that they've had through their life. So it's a learning lesson isn't it? because we don't know what's going on inside them. No. And you could see the mental health problems that, that they had, the children had themselves and also the parents when yeah. we invited the parents in. Yeah. In, incredible problems really, which I had never seen before mm. being in a, being in a secondary school You'd meet people at parents' evening, but the parents that turned up were the parents that wanted to come in. Yeah. They weren't the parents <laughs> who, uh, who we wanted to come in. No, no. But there, at the Prue, it's slightly different. It's slightly different, yeah. 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 And that's the first time that I saw the huge problems that we have with mental health in, in this country. Mm. One particular day, a, a boy, it was he was icy outside and... He wasn't happy with life, and he decided to run out and lay on the uh, lay on the road. Okay. In on the ice, and it was incredible. Really, uh, uh, a teacher told me what had happened, so I went outside, and he's lying on the road, and there were cars um, driving round him. Nobody stopped or anything, so yeah. I went into the road and I said to him you know, what we're doing. And at one point I was sat next to him as he was laid on the road. And eventually, 10 minutes, quarter of an hour later, I was able to get him back into the into the building. And that took, that's, I spent all day on that mm. and that problem. I mean, he, he'd, he'd unfortunately had a lot of drugs before, before he came in because there was a problem in his family. Mm-hmm. But he had huge mental health problems, mm-hmm. that young man. But when he was 16, he he, he strode out of um, the centre and hopefully, you know, had a, had a decent life. Mm. You can only hope, can't you? You can yeah. only do your best in those situations, can't you? Yeah. So it's cha- certainly a challenging thing. So we just ask you this last question on on teaching then. So... What was the what's the best thing about teaching and what's the worst thing about teaching for you? Yeah, that's 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 an interesting one and something I I, I thought long and hard about. I think the best thing was was creating situations where people would uh would improve, develop mm. their abilities in in PE. Mm. Uh, and performance in in, in academic subjects. Mm. I mean, I, I taught 
for I think 18 years, uh, years, year 11 uh, maths. Now, it wasn't a quality class. Um, it was set nine. And at the start, there were six of them. And after a few weeks, months, there was 36 of them. And, but we had, we had a good time. Mm. They didn't get high GCSE results. No. But they learned something. Yeah. It's interesting. You, you didn't go to kind of, you know, winning this cup or winning that cup. You went straight to set nine, maths, and maybe a small gain that made a huge difference. And potentially a difference that you didn't see. You know, a seed that was planted and a difference yeah. you didn't see. That's... I mean, I can remember n- numerous children that came into that group and they couldn't even do the, the times tables. No. But by the end of the year, they could do the times tables. Yeah. It was it was disciplined. Yeah. But, you know, boys especially, they enjoyed being removed from their group to come into set nine. Because we did all kinds of different things like you've done in your career mm. we did um we we watched a basketball game and did some statistics from it once a week we did uh, we we had some opera on and people would go past the past the room and think what's happening in there mm. and they were these were difficult children mm. these were the most challenging children in, in the school this was at collegiate yeah uh, but they enjoyed doing it mm. And they would sit and do the work, listening to this opera. Great stuff. Yeah. The worst thing? When people un- underachieved, and it's the opposite to this, really. Right. Um, the other side of the coin. Yeah, yeah. I, I spoke to a, a colleague uh, the other night about uh, a, a couple of people, and uh, I mean, two, two boys especially come to mind who were incredible athletes absolutely unbelievable athletes and they both could have been uh, national sprint champions and they, they just one boy he was they were both Lancashire champions one was North of England champion and the first boy he decided not not to turn up for the nationals he wouldn't get on the bus mm. uh, and the second boy he decided that uh, working on a building site was was better for him mm. than putting the work in. They both had natural innate innate ability. Mm. But they didn't use it. No. They didn't put the hard work in to to kind of top that up and No. No. Which was sad, but you can mm. only provide opportunities, can't you? We provide provide opportunities. Some people take it up, usually coming from decent families. Yeah. And some people don't. Both of them had uh, family problems, mm. and there wasn't that support like we were, like you were asking earlier, mm. uh, from 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 my parents, perhaps, that did support me. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a tricky one, like we say, you know, because you, you can look back at in the good old days, as they say, you know, and we, we played out in the street, and you know, parents didn't know where we were until tea time, and you ran in. Um, and you can make all sorts of assumptions about about what that was like, but then if you fast forward to today, the ch- the kids are out on the street 
the parents that don't know where they are, there's usually kind of an underlying dysfunction in the family, um, which is quite sad. Yeah. And it seems to be different to, you know, that between the two times, it seems to be different. Food for thought. Mm. Yeah. Let's take a break. Well, that was uh, part one. I found it fascinating how from such humble beginnings with such basic of encouragement, he developed a passion for sport that became his vehicle to make his mark on the world. I can't tell you the number of children and teachers Ian has impacted and whose future he shaped. Whenever I bump into someone who he taught, they'll always have a, a roadsy story or experience that will be affectionately retold. And it's so clear to see how powerful his teaching was. He may not, uh, we, we may not necessarily remember what he taught us, but we do remember the way he made us feel. In part two, Ian will tell us what success means to him, what his life was like as a single dad in the 80s, and how faith has played a part in his life. He'll also touch on dementia and his experience of that. Um, lots more to come, and uh, I hope you'll join me for part two soon. You've been listening to Off The Court. Have a great day. <laughs>